0: everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For The Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on
1: this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, guys. It's Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the For The Love podcast. We are in the middle of what is to me, a fascinating and important series called For the Love of Exploring Our Faith. We are talking to faith leaders across the spectrum um, from different traditions and um, different perspectives and from a variety of um, places and and theologies. And it's been so, so, so interesting. And I think you're going to love today's interview. Um, Our guest today is Joshua Jabois, and he's probably one of our country's top voices on on community partnerships, on religion in the public square, and specifically on issues impacting um, African Americans and people of color. So this is what Josh and I are going to dial in today. He led the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in President Obama's first term. In fact, he was called the President's Pastor-in-Chief by Time magazine, and he spearheaded the White House's work on responsible fatherhood and grassroots community partnerships, religion and foreign affairs. And he brought together leaders from across the ideological spectrum, um, and it's just really fascinating work. So he's the author of a best-selling book called The President's Devotional. The daily readings that inspired President Obama, which is we'll talk about. It. It's this compilation of meditations and devotionals he sent to President Obama every day um, about faith and public life. So he now leads a consulting firm called Values Partnerships, which we'll also talk about. Um, they do some really important and interesting work um, in our culture right now. So. Um, He's a frequent media commentator. He's been featured on everything and everywhere you can think of. Um, he's also named to the Route 100 and Ebony Magazine's Power 150, listed the most influential African Americans in the country um, he's he really his his life and his work and his words have really mattered he got his master's degree in public affairs from um, the Woodrow Wilson school at Princeton and he got his bachelor's from Boston University and had really formative experiences in both places um, and he's a former associate pastor at a Pentecostal church in Cambridge so he's originally from Nashville he currently lives in DC with his wife Michelle and his son August and his tiny little four-month-old. So he is completely a dad in the weeds. And we are going to talk about what it was like to serve in the White House. We are going to talk about President Obama. Uh, Specifically, we're going to talk about President Obama's reversal on gay marriage and what that was like to witness and and his faith and what he was like behind the scenes and um, our current um, administration and Joshua's thoughts on that. Listen, this is a really packed conversation. It's powerful and it's it's deeply faithful. Josh is a man of amazing faith. I think you're going to really love him. If you haven't heard of him before, you're going to be glad that you're listening today. So thanks for joining and let me welcome Joshua Dubois to the podcast. All right. I am really so happy to welcome you to the show, Josh. Thank you for being here.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation.
1: I have followed you for some time and I have yet to find anything that you say that I don't like. I'm still, I'm looking hard.
0: <laughs> if I you look hard found. enough, I'm sure there will be several things, but I appreciate this.
1: <laughs> really? I mean, I just, you're so interesting and your life is so dynamic. You've occupied so many phenomenal roles and you've just done so much. Plus you have a real cute baby. Oh, so that's all working for me. Two
0: of them. Adelaide is four months, and oh, August is two and a half years old. Gosh. And um, and we're and we're blessed because our daughter, our, our four month old, is and August isn't in the room, so I can say this, but she's so much more chill than the little boy. And so <laughs>
1: it's, it's it's
0: a fun house right now. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: You know what? You've got a baby and a toddler. You are in the weeds. That is yeah. where you're at.
0: Yep. yep. we we are we are knee uh, knee deep in in the weeds, if I can mix my metaphors. So yeah, but we're having fun. It's, That's it's, fabulous. It's, it's,
1: um, so listen, before we sort of dive into our topics today around the idea of exploring our faith, which I love. I I'm not afraid of hard questions, and I like interesting perspectives, and um, I'm I'm that none of that makes me clutch any pearls at all. But yep. I wanted our listeners to know a little bit more about your roots in ministry. Um, And in social justice, because you have them, you've got quite a bit of family history in both of those areas. Um, And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and what influence your, your family members have had on you and how this foundation was laid.
0: Yeah, uh, so my dad's a pastor. He, he uh, pastors a church in Nashville, Tennessee, Payne Chapel A.M.E. Church in, in Nashville, and and I grew up in the church. Um, yeah. The um, uh, the A.M.E. church is an itinerant um, institution, and so we were moved around a bunch to different congregations from Virginia to Tennessee to Ohio, and so mm-hmm. sort of the the infrastructure and nuance and you know just the the heart of the black church sort of beats um, within me. On uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that. That, you know, just by function of being in the church, I knew Jesus, and we can talk a little bit more right. about that um, yeah. because that was a a later <laughs> um, evolution for me. But um, but yeah, but definitely grew up in in the church, and then just kind of on the social justice side, it was also you know similarly sort of in in my bones. My uh, grandmother, Catherine Russell, in Nashville, is very much an activist and was a part mm-hmm. of. Uh, the civil rights movement in Nashville and, you know, the overall civil rights movement really had its roots in Nashville. And so heard those stories um, growing mm-hmm. up. And, you know, it was the type of house where right next to the Bible, there was, you know, a book by W.E.B. Du Bois or, yeah. um, you know, or the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so th- mm-hmm. it was this, you know, Consistent um, coexistence of, you know, strong faith, strong uh, Christian walk and journey. You know, I mean, we grew up listening to um, Wits uh, Wits in and focus on the family on the radio. I mm-hmm. went to um, yeah. the Fellowship of Christian Athletes camps um, sure. growing up, and but at the same time, um, uh, social justice all around and and, and through and through, and um, and so you know, it was just uh, natural for me growing up to combine mm-hmm. the two.
1: I would love to hear um you talk a little bit more about um how how being in the church doesn't necessarily translate to believing in Jesus or following his ways like how did that play out in your life that that was something added later what yeah. that look like
0: yeah well you know like i said i was a pk um and um and which had its you know there were some strong things there sure. i knew you know i i could recite the old testament um to you sure. by the time i was you know 12 or 13 I, I don't know if that was church or veggie tales but somehow that that, <laughs> that was helpful to um but at the you know the flip side of that the the more challenging side is that, you know, I define church as the bureaucracy and the politics. You know, especially as a PK, I saw, you know, I don't want to I don't want to, want it to sound nefarious but you know you could say it's sort of the the ugly underbelly of of totally. you know church politics and it's hard um, to see behind the curtain Exactly right and mm-hmm. and um and so I kind of thought I knew um what Christianity was and um and it was sort of a textbook definition um and not um not not a heart thing um and so when I went to college mm-hmm. went to um Boston University, um, I wanted nothing to do with, with, with the church. Um, I didn't mm. uh, attend services my first two years there, was sort of exploring, you know, I would almost call myself sort of a functional agnostic, um, and just kind of walked away because there was nothing sort of real for me um, there. And mm. um, and it was funny, it was sort of one day, um, and, and, I, and I should also note that I also walked away from social justice and, you know, mm. thinking about the world around me. Um, yeah. Uh, it was sort of a individualistic um, moment where, you know, I was trying to pursue a career and, you know, education and, you know, all the other things that a teenage boy would pursue sure. in the first couple years of college and just sort of walked away, you know, from my core commitments. Um and then um, it was sort of one day that I sort of uh, turned the corner. I um, I uh, had been following the case of a young man in New York, um, so not in mm-hmm. Boston, but I was listening to the news about a man in New York um, named Amadou Diallo. And this was an African right. immigrant um who was walking on the street one day in New York um, and um, uh, was confronted by police. I believe he was like coming home from work or something. And because yeah. he had a language barrier, he sort of didn't understand what they were saying. He went to take out his wallet um, so that mm. he could show the officers his ID. Um, and in the process of taking out that wallet, um, the officers saw the wallet, um, said that they thought it was a gun and shot mm. him 41 times. Um, yeah. And so um, just sort of mowed him down in, in the, in the streets. And, and mm-hmm. so this – I remember I was actually working – I worked full-time, went to school full-time. I was working at Craftmatic Beds in Boston, and mm-hmm. I remember hearing about this case, um, and it just sort of devastated me. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, there's got to be some justice for this 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 guy. Followed it for months um, and then was also at work when um, the news came back in that um, – the, the verdict that the officers would be acquitted on all charges. Right. And right. just kind of leveled me. I still to this day don't know exactly. Exactly what God was doing in my mind and heart in that moment. Mm-hmm. But it just sort of devastated me, this notion that there's a mom out there who would not have earthly justice for her son. Um, That's right. And um, and so I still don't <laughs> necessarily know why I did it, but I just wrote his name, Amadou Diallo's mm-hmm. name, on... Um, in um, and, and the words 41 shots on, on a um, on a poster board and mm. I stood in the most prominent location in my campus on my campus that I could mm. uh, Marsh Plaza um, and just committed to speaking his name out in the world and telling his story to anybody that walked by and again was not an activist not a member of NAACP mm. student government anything this was like the I was the last person who would do stuff like this um, and uh, but it just broke my heart and I, and I wanted to share his story with the world and so did that and it was you know was amazing at first nobody was there and then people came by and, and talked to me and sort of a crowd started forming and some folks decided to stay out there with me and sort of became wow. this this demonstration and um, and then towards the end of it um, a brother uh, who um, ended up who I didn't know before that moment but is now one of my best friends in the world um, mm-hmm. uh, approached me and said you know um, it's amazing what you're doing love how you're senior around campus, love mm-hmm. how you're sort of waking up and getting involved in society. But, you know, there's another level to all this, um, some things you really need to understand about the world um, that you'll only um, really understand if you come to church with me. <laughs> and so wow, you know, really he invited me to church. And, and at first I just kind of brushed him off. I'm like, man, I have done this church thing for well, years. Totally. I know all the hymns. Mm-hmm. I know scripture. Like, I, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need that. But he, um, we exchanged information. He just sort of kept at me. Um And Eugene uh, Schneberg is his last name. He um, eventually um, uh, convinced me to come to his little church. Um, It's a tiny little congregation. You know, my dad had pastored significant churches. And I walk in here and it's like 12 people in a middle school auditorium. There's no instruments. And and it's just you know, the pastor's wife and, and family are the, are the praise team. And I'm like, this is, sure. this is a joke. <laughs> like like I've, right. uh, you know, this is, uh, I've, I've been to much more impressive churches than this, um, right. but, but I sat down Jen and I, I heard that first m- message preached by, by uh, my mm-hmm. pastor, Warren Collins. And, um, and the Holy spirit penetrated my heart in that moment, mm-hmm. l- unlike anything that i had experienced before. And it was sort of the first time that like all of the bureaucracy, you know, would, fall mm. away and the church politics. And sure. I got to sort of meet Jesus for who he is mm. and, um, and gave my life to Christ in that, um, in that service. So it's just, you know, it's a long, long yeah. story, but kind of the, the, this unique moment where both my social awareness um, was built and even more importantly um, where I, where I found my faith.
1: Mm. I love that story. Um, I, I've been at that exact spot on, on the campus. And I just, I can visually see you standing there. And that's really, really powerful. Interesting that that was sort of your front door to that friendship, which was your front door to Jesus. So tell me, so so then it evolves even more. What what were you studying at the time? Uh, Political science. Yeah. And so you knew there was something in you that knew, I want to work in the realm of politics in some way.
0: That's right, yeah, and then, after I got involved at at calvary our church i was it was like it was either going to be politics or somehow connected to to faith my eventually my my pastor made me an associate pastor um and led our um youth ministries um we led a, a bible study in a halfway house in cambridge and um and so it was just sort of grappling which uh, with uh which path it was going to be. And I went to graduate school um, in New Jersey, went to um, Woodrow Wilson School at, at Princeton um, and studied yep. public affairs there, not not um, policy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, up until the time I started working for then-Senator Obama was still sort of grappling with, is it, am I going to go down a, a ministry path or yep. a political and, and, and policy path?
1: Well, let's talk about that because— I read that when you first applied to join um, Obama's Senate campaign that you got rejected, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is awesome. <laughs> and You didn't care. That was not the end of the road for you, no matter what they said. So what did you do when you got that letter? Um, what did you why didn't you just take that on the chin?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm doing this podcast by a safe that has that rejection letter, like uh, is literally sitting next scary. to me right now, which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, it was so it was you know, very long story short. Um, I was trying to figure out politics or ministry. Uh, in July 2004, um, was doing a internship on Capitol Hill, and then I, I saw this guy giving a speech at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. Some yeah. of your listeners might remember that yeah. that speech. Um, and it was this skinny. Guy yep. I'd never heard of before with these Me big either. old ears named Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I was jiving with all of the things he was talking about, the policy prescriptions, and then out of nowhere, he started talking about the awesome God that we worship in the mm-hmm. blue states. And I thought, man, this is a Democrat. I, I could get behind. I, I, you know, when he said those words, I, I immediately was thinking about, you know, thro- throwing my arms up at FCA camp and singing our God is an awesome God. And, and you know, it, so it was just this weird cultural connection and hmm. um, so I pursued his office, wrote him a bunch of letters, um, got a bunch of form letter responses, yeah. uh, drove down from New Jersey to his yeah. um, transition office in the Senate. Um, and, um, you know, four hours each way. Uh went there the first time, got rejected. They you know, they said that no one could meet with me. And so I drove back up. Right. You just showed Friends up day, right. you didn't uh, have an interview. Just literally showed up. No interview. <laughs> um but you know, I was praying about it and I just felt God kinda nudging me in this direction. And yeah. um and then went went back down a second time. And this time they sort of had um mercy on me and said that I can meet with what they said was a very senior person in the office and right. had a had a wonderful conversation. Um Thought thought I was getting some traction, drove back up to Jersey and and I, and I um I Googled the guy and ended up being the IT guy that they connected with nice. so um and so but leveraged that to send sort of this one last ditch email to this guy named Chris Liu who was uh, mm-hmm. the legislative director and said listen man I've been down there twice I've sent you all these letters like I, I would love to have a real interview and conversation and to Chris's credit and just by the grace of God you know mm-hmm. they they got back to me and said you know your persistence paid off we'll give you an interview interview. interview um and then we'll give you a job um i mean that's what happened after the interview um it was still a decision though because i was coming out of grad school at princeton my my Mm -hmm. um colleagues are making lots of money doing some amazing sure. things. And they offered me a legislative correspondent position, which was basically writing constituent letters to people that wrote into the office hmm. for like 20 some odd grand a year, um, which, you know, you know, for, for some people may be okay with coming out of grad school with, you right. know, with a lot of student loans wasn't. And and so it was a point of prayer, but, you know, God, yeah. I just felt like that was where I was supposed to be. So started, wow. started early
1: on in those days. So you just put your head down and you did that sort of invisible work yep. in the trenches and it paid off. I mean, it really did. You um, became a part of that campaign and then a part of the big campaign. And so kind of walk us through your, your progress from that moment when you're just writing letters for pennies yeah. um, all the way until you become Appointed under President Obama as the head of faith based and neighborhood partnerships.
0: Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was an amazing journey. So, start started as writing constituent letters. Um, they promoted me to, to be the lead on commerce, trade, and transportation issues, which was kind of fun. Um, and then one day in 2006, actually, December two thousand five, heading into oh six, um, then Senator Obama said he wanted to give a speech about his his faith and his Christian journey, mm-hmm. and was there anyone in the office that could you know work with him on it and nobody raised their hand. So I raised Mm -hmm. my hand and, um, and he ended up giving a speech that is still one of my favorites. It's not Mm. as well known. Um, but he gave it at Jim Wallace's call to renewal conference in 2006. Um, in fact, EJ Dion called it in the post, um, the most important speech by a Democrat on faith and politics since John F. Kennedy. Um, and so we're really proud of that address and Mm. mailed it to a bunch of folks around the country, including people who became friends later on and pastors and others after he gave. And, um, that sort of started the snowball of me helping him, um, connect to, uh, the faith community, um, authentically mm-hmm. and share his own story and, you know, build coalitions, um, to, to, to partner with him. And so from there started working on the, um, 2008 campaign, led our religious affairs there. Um, that's actually also when I started getting just more um, uh, uh, closely connected to and, and growing the relationship with um, with Senator Obama. I started sending him these devotional messages in the morning um, mm-hmm. that, he, that he would read on his Blackberry every day and connecting him uh, with pastors for different moments of prayer and just sort of um, mm-hmm. just going deeper with him and his family. Um, and then we won, praise God. And um yeah moved into, um, uh, into a position in the White House. I led the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships um, yeah. and was a, appointed there in, uh, in 2009, leading um, our both uh, religion and a lot of our race portfolio. So all the yeah. easy stuff, of course. So, Obviously. Yeah.
1: Like very, very non-contentious. Exactly I right. mean, yeah. everybody's on the same page. Yep, all and the worth time. noting, I mean, you're appointed at age 26. I mean yeah. – that's young. That is, it is young, young, and that's it, a lot—a lot, at, a lot. on your shoulders.
0: If you ask Valerie Jarrett or or the Pre- President Obama and others, they'll laugh at that because I literally—they would ask me how old I am, and I'm like, not only will I not tell you, but if you go in my employment <laughs> file, like I know you're the president, but I'm going to sue you. Like, you know I, mean? like I
1: would—I would,
0: I would just try to take it off the table because I, you know, you can't help but. Um, it, yeah, I, I thought that because of the experiences I had had and, you know, the work that I had done then and before that I could handle this role and, and praise God, yeah. I think we, we did a pretty good job there. Um, but yeah. I knew that like, when you hear that number, 26, 27, whatever it is, you right. can't, I mean, I would, I'm 35 now. If somebody came up to me and they were 26, I would have some questions, right? It's so, well, I mean, totally. <laughs> can
1: you explain to everybody a little bit about what, your position was, what the faith-based and neighborhood partnerships, what was that? What did you do? What were your objectives? Um, what was sort of the underlying core values in that space? And I'd love to hear what sort of progress you think you made there in President Obama's first term um, and and the sort of renewal that you got to be a part of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's kind of three big parts of my role. Um two of them that were sort of formally with the, the, the job. And then one that was, um, just something that I did. It's kind of it was partnerships, policy, and then personal. And so, um, mm-hmm. on the partnerships and policy side, um, I worked both through the White House and through thirteen federal agency offices um, of faith-based and neighborhood partnerships mm-hmm. to make sure that the federal government was connecting to and supporting and resourcing um, both through financial and non-financial resources uh, the grassroots groups that are on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, changing people's lives every day. And so we shaped grant programs related to fatherhood and healthy families. We Mm -hmm. launched a new interfaith service effort out of the Corporation for National Service. We uh, launched a big campaign to get um, faith-based organizations to partner with their local public school and help turn around public schools through the Department of Mm -hmm. Education faith-based office. We did a, um, a review of the ways that our embassies around the world were partnering with faith communities in their country that led to a whole new infrastructure at the State Department. Um, we, mm. we started a program at the United States Department of Agriculture um, that, that helped faith and community organizations uh, feed hungry kids in the summertime, um, separately also advised on policy. And so we helped navigate mm. um, both um, tough issues related to church and state. And we think we got the faith-based office a little tighter on, on mm. um, its sort of legal and pol- legal underpinnings, uh, making sure that we were funding and supporting faith-based organizations, but that federal uh, Federal funds were not going towards religious purposes, um, which mm-hmm. was important not just for the government but for religious groups. You don't want of course uh, government meddling in worship, right? Um, and so of we we did that. Advised on difficult issues related to religious freedom and you know other yeah. pieces as well. And so that was sort of on the policy side, and then on the personal side, you know we. Um, convened the first we started the first ever White House Easter prayer breakfast for example
1: you know mm, there were yeah i love that
0: yeah there was you know awesome events for amazing mm-hmm. Uh, other faith communities. And, you know, there was a Seder before, there was an Iftar, but uh-huh. the president looked and saw, you know, there's nothing that we have for Easter for my own faith, you know, for the resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus. And so he wanted to start that off and kind of make that his signature thing. And so we did that. And then, you know, just kind of personally separate from my formal role, um, you know, I'd bring in pastors and others to spend time with President Obama to pray and counsel him and, you know, um, would send him these devotional messages in the morning and, and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and then finally, I guess, oh, yeah. you know, part of the policy piece was also navigated stuff related to race as well. And so the yeah. beginnings of our work with men and boys of color on police violence and so forth was a, a part of my work too.
1: Pretty amazing. I mean, that that's quite a run you just listed. I I love how you... Were really intentional about connecting President Obama with specific pastors. I I read that you campaigned pretty heavily for Rick Warren, who you know obviously pastors Saddleback out in California, um, to deliver his invocation um, at his inauguration. I, what was your What was your motive there? What was your connection there? And. Um, do, you, do you think it had an impact? Do you, did you see some after effects of that prayer?
0: We wanted to focus on how can faith and community organizations impact human lives and advance human dignity, no matter your political perspective, um, no matter whether, whether you voted for President Obama the first That's time or right. not, or vote for him again, you were know, you welcome mm. here. And I, I think that um, bringing in Pastor Rick in that moment uh, began to send that signal.
1: It did. Uh, That felt really evident watching, um, watching the White House and who they invited in and who they welcomed and um, who sort of had a seat at the table. It was really a remarkable example um, that that administration set for the rest of us in a time where um, we can tend to be so incredibly um, religiously polarized and fearful of one another and territorial. Um, It was really profound. Um, to watch that sort of cooperation and um, partnership emerge from the White House of all places. Let's go back to something you mentioned. You you said kind of off in an offhanded way that you would send these devotionals to President Obama on the daily that he would read on his Blackberry. Uh, you went on later to write a whole devotional book around that exchange. Um, but I want, I want to talk about that in a few minutes, but, um, I read in an interview where someone else asked you, um, right after Trump was elected, what verse would you give him if you were sending, um, devotionals to his Blackberry? Can you tell us what you chose if you remember it? Um, and why, why you picked that for him? I chose Zechariah
0: 7, 9 through 10 because I, I don't remember the exact passage, but I know it concludes with um, a note around not oppressing the widow or the fatherless or the the foreigner or the poor and do not plot evil with each other. I mean, it's a sort of an exploration mm-hmm. of our heart. You know, who who is our yeah. impulse toward and who is it against? And it was, you know, one among probably thousands of instructions in the Bible that we've got to have an impulse for... The widow and the fatherless, the foreigner and the poor, if and and, and an impulse towards um, treating each other well rather than poorly, and um, and you know I I cannot look into and penetrate um, Donald Trump's heart, but I. Um, just you know, through discernment and and, yeah. um, and what I see, I'm concerned about the impulses, and I'm concerned about mm-hmm. where those impulses lead uh, and leave the the vulnerable. And so that's that's why I selected that um, because you know it's it's one thing to have prepared remarks, and it's one thing to to say the right thing in certain moments, but um, this is appears to be a current administration that is operating a lot on the basis of impulse, and some of those impulses are deeply troubling to
1: me. I agree. Um I think a lot of us do and um worried that um you know once once rhetoric becomes policy, policy absolutely affects human lives. So yeah. at some point it seems like it's just talking and tweeting. Uh, but though that has a very real effect, a really—I mean, it's now been a year and a half since you know you were—you said that's the scripture that I would send um, to President Elect Trump, and so now that it has been, you know, a year and a half since then or so, um, I, I think that was. Wise, discerning, and sound advice. Um, that I wonder if you can get his cell phone and send it every day. Do you
0: think <laughs> <know>. that's something <laughs> we can arrange? <laughs> I, I, listen, I I feel like he needs to spend time away from the phone. That's Good the point. problem. You know, he's to Put the smartphone down. I mean, but you know, it, it, it's the tweets are the issue. But honestly, like the thing that is really in my spirit and that that troubles me more is just sort of the long term yeah. impact on evangelism mm-hmm. and. People meeting Jesus, and and what I mean by that is like, you know, I spend a lot of time at, at church, just kind of as a servant at, at my own church, and mm-hmm. and 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 just sort of in life, like trying my best to be a vessel for, in a very much imperfect vessel, but right. a vessel for like God to use me to point people towards Him, right? And and now, like our our I hate to say the word brand, but our brand as mm-hmm. Christians is just kind of like shaded and right. with this 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 man and 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 Christians endorsement of him and people who are non believers look at that right and then they look at Christians saying that basically it's okay and then they right. look at the fact that Donald Trump said he's never asked for forgiveness before yeah. and they say this is what your faith is about this uh-huh. this is who who you've decided to associate with and it's honestly for me it's it's less about what that means now mm. and more about what it means um, you know over the next few years and in the, in the coming generations when we're trying to um, connect people to the good news of Jesus Christ, mm. and um, and we have this thing hanging over mm. us, and you know, I've I've got to sort of check myself because God is even bigger than all of that, right? And mm. no amount of my anxiety or angst about about it is um is uh is more important than what God can do even in the midst of all of this. Um, mm. And um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm still praying through how to right. respond to, to all of this, but, but that is the bigger concern of, of mine. And that is why I, I really grieve when I see good people um, connect themselves to what I believe is a really destructive force for the gospel.
1: I couldn't agree more. I share all your concerns and I'm worried about the long game here, but it's a short term power play, however good. you want to look at it. And what we have agreed to tolerate and give a free pass to in the name of power. Um, in the name of protection, I just don't know how we're going to recover. It's, it's going to be a lot of work and I, um, I, it's going to even be the work of the next generation, I think to have to, um, rebuild sort of the credibility of the gospel and the ways of Jesus, um, into what it feels like at this point has just been cast aside for proximity to power. guys, quick break to tell you about something I'm super excited about. So listen, if you're feeling like you spend too much, eat too much, own too much, waste too much, you might want to check out the seven experiment video series and books I developed and take the seven week challenge against excess that literally changed our family's lives permanently. And Hey, if you'll use the code podcast at checkout, you'll get $10 off any package. And if you already have the book, and some of you do, we have a package for you too, and the code still counts. You can find out more about all of this at the seven experiment.com. Okay, you guys, back to the show. I was in church on Sunday, and we had a guest preacher. She's a, a superintendent at the Methodist Church. And, and, you know, she was just talking about how, um, How the ways of Jesus simply will prevail. You know, he told us that in scripture. They just will. We're not powerful enough to destroy them. And I thought, you know what? That's good and hopeful news that we will not be the first generation to take Jesus down. Yeah. You know, we're just not, we're not that awesome. I needed to hear we're that. Not that gen- powerful. Yeah. <laughs> but it does feel like that. It on feels some like days. it sometimes. And, it, and,
0: it it, does. It, and it's, it's the witness thing. And I, and I won't belabor this, but it's also, you know, I'm, I'm still wrapping my mind around this challenge of raising a boy. Right. I got this old oh, and, same. and yeah. um, and a girl too. Right. And, and mm-hmm. um, and when I came up, you know, I, I my mom was a single parent for a while, but then married my, my dad, my stepdad, um, who's, who's my father. I don't I don't consider him a stepdad. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I got some great instruction there. And and quite frankly, you know, we were listening to Focus on the Family in the car. We were we right. were sort of girded up in like basic mm. family life. Now, I've gone on to disagree about uh, with James sure. Dobson on a range of things, right. um, you know, from from politics to LGBT issues and so forth. But right. still, the sort of the basic notion of like what it meant to love and respect your wife, your partner, to to, um, operate with integrity in your family relationships. But then you see this mess, right? And how do we raise boys and let them know that there are Mm. consequences for actions when not only Mm. you can be the president of the United States and talk about where you grab women and cheat on your wife, Mm. um, but pastors and activists and yes. presidents of universities will endorse you and not call that out, right? And, and I'm mm-hmm. not saying that they, they judge, but I'm saying that they're not using any discernment in the way that they right. have wrapped their arms around it. And, and the, I mean, so that's, it's, it's both the evangelism piece, but it's also just the, the impact on our kids. And, you know, again, this no is bigger than all of that. The Holy Spirit is going to help us navigate through it, but it's a problem that we have to really figure out.
1: It sure is. Um, it's it's something of an effect and of an infection, if you will. And and we start feeling it seep into our pulpits, um, into our talk radio, um, into our leader's language. And, um, and, and, and I share all of your concerns there. And, um, you know, I've, I have five kids and the oldest is a sophomore in college and the youngest is sixth grade. So I've, you know, almost all my kids are teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so, um, president Obama has been the president of their childhood, all of them. That's, that's the president. They know that is the presidency they saw and watched and witnessed and listened to. And that was the rhetoric that they learned from. And, and it has been a bit of a crush to have to sit them down over and over and over as they watch this current regime and say, we don't, we don't talk like that. We don't believe that. Um, That is not the way to deal with human beings. This policy is dangerous. Um, This is racist. Um, uh, It's just been such a, it's such a whiplash, such a gear change. Speaking of that, you have had a lot of words of comfort and I've, I've watched with so much admiration um, for, for African-Americans and people of color who've been especially discouraged um by this election uh, where frankly neither candidate seemed to have their hand on the on the pulse of the African American community but um but whose winner obviously has put forth not just language but policies um based on what feels like Racial division, and so I wonder. After just sort of the initial shock and disappointment, do you feel like in any way that this election has it motivated? Yeah. I, I'm curious your your take here. Do you think it's motivated those of us who champion like racial equality? To fight harder.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it definitely yeah. has, and, and it, it it's done a few things. One, this is sort of a renaissance moment for some amazing organizations that are taking creative approaches to the age-old problem of, of race in America. So from Color of Change, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, to the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, and, and the Advancement Project, and so many others, um, they're just doing great, groundbreaking work, um, both protecting people who are under assault right now by by the mm. Department of Justice, by, you know, um, by the administration, and in other ways as well, um, but also advancing the ball and just just, you know, creatively solving age old problems. And so that, that's a big thing. It's just the organizations that are out there and certainly encourage folks to connect with them and support them. The, the, the other thing though, is that, you know, and this was fascinating for me. Um, I think it has exposed the fallacy and the thinness of reconciliation in the church.
1: Hmm. Um, what and, do you mean by that? We say more about that. Yeah.
0: I mean, and, and I was a part of some of these movements too. So we, um, I had been invited to—I can't tell you how many like efforts to like promote reconciliation, and what that often meant was, you know, get together in the same space with you know mm-hmm. leaders of faith from across different lines, and uh, mm-hmm. particularly across racial lines, and right. you know maybe there is some level of confession that you know we've done wrong, mm-hmm. or there's you know some mm-hmm. sort of meeting in the middle, but it's something I've, it felt. Sort of, I, I felt uneasy about a lot of this stuff, and I participated. And you know, we brought a group down to Mother Emanuel in Charleston, which is a place where I've spent a lot of time and have you know done a lot of work um, trying to help them recover. And brought a hmm. b- pastors there, and you know, just different forums. Um, and but but felt uneasy about it. I couldn't put my finger on why. And then the election happened, and then America elected Donald Trump. And then you know, base, yeah. folks basically said that you know, I'm not saying that every, that people who voted for him are are, are racist, but they did not but the the the, um, the racial undertones of that election and the impact on people of color did not matter enough we don't really know the real story we don't know how we mm. how other people have been impacted we don't know literally the bodies that are buried in the blood on the ground right. and and what is continuing to happen today um, and so you know I think this has exposed that right it, it, you know mm. me and a whole bunch of other uh, Christians of color and not of color have, have said that you know Know what we're not doing any more thin reconciliation, we, we, either we go deep or we don't go at all.
1: What do you think that looks like? Do you have ideas on that? Yeah,
0: I mean, a few things. One, I, I honestly, it's, it's gonna sound really wonky, but I, I honestly think people need to know our American story, we need to know our history a little bit more. I do too, do, right? You know, um, that's right. the 45 second version is 1619 people showed up at this country that that were human beings Mm -hmm. and they were immediately turned into um, not to themselves, but to other people chattel. Animals, slaves like they were right. held as such for 250 years until 1861 mm-hmm. right and so we owned people we bought and sold them we split up families we raped women and there was no recourse for it right. we had about 20 years of a turnaround after the Civil War where mm-hmm. um, uh, black folks were were freed, they were liberated they were beginning to own property mm-hmm. and they were elected to office in the south and then there was this massive right. racist backlash when um, the northern troops left um, uh, and the supposed reconstruction era and from 1880 to 1940 3,000 black people were hung up from trees. 3,000 mm. people lynched in a massive terror that existed until the 1940s, yes. right? Then we had a really brief civil rights movement then from the 40s to the late 60s. We secured some legal rights. Um, and then that leads mm. up to the 70s when like many of us were like 70 mm. today, many of us were bored. So we basically yeah. have like 350 years of like really tough, terrible right. stuff that has passed down trauma and all kinds of impacts across That's generations. In right. 50 or 60 years, years where we're starting to sort of try to figure it out. Um, and, and I don't think people really have grappled with that story. They want to start from today as if today is just fresh, as if, you know, the kids that are, That's um, right. the, you know, today there was, or yesterday wasn't, there was another murder of, a Young black man in his grandmother's backyard with a cell phone as if that happens in a vacuum rather than those officers who shot him having been shaped by that history that I just described. Right. right. And um, and so I think the number one thing is pick up a book. Read, yeah. um, uh, grapple with this story. Thing number two is invite yeah. in speakers. I think every white church should have a Black History Month event, right? <laughs> and like invite nice. in a speaker yeah. to share about some of this stuff. Or maybe it's not February, but yeah. to like have a conversation about, you know, this this narrative. You know, book clubs um, pick uh, uh, where, where you're grappling with some of these issues. And quite frankly, Black folks and other people of color, we have our own stuff to grapple with. I'm not one of those folks that thinks that. Um, that it's only the majority community that has to deal with some of these issues. There there are middle and upper class uh, black folks who have to uh, who, who need to check themselves on how they engage
1: mm-hmm.
0: um you know people that are struggling. There you know there's I think racism that exists um in in other communities and and so we we all have have some work to do basically.
1: You know, it's funny cuz of the two things that you suggested, you know, you said they're wonky or they're simple, but the truth is those two efforts can make a monumental difference in the basic understanding of the average citizen and thus their compassion and empathy and perspective. I mean, I remember a few years ago when I read cover to cover and it's dense, but um, Michelle Alexander's Mm -hmm. book, um, the new Jim Crow. And, you know, she deeply walked through American history. And then of course, the subsequent ways that all of that racist and just the white supremacy culture infects all of our systems. So there's no way to say, well, we're post, you know, we're a post-racial society when we had hundreds of years of those systems infecting our criminal justice system, our education system, generational wealth, land ownership, you know, it just never ends. Yeah, um, And it's so, it so rattled me.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's, it's it's such a good book and so important for folks to read. Another text that um, that would uh, think about folks considering is um, Stamped from the Beginning. It's, uh, mm. It won the National Book Award. It's by this guy, um, Ibram Kendi, um, and it's it's basically a history of how racist ideas developed in the country. It's an amazing book, New York Times bestseller, um, and just couldn't recommend it highly enough too
1: uh everybody listening we will have all these links and more i'll put together a reading list for you too um up on the on the transcript page on my website cuz i think i can't tell you how important this is so not only will uh, a good solid book Um, change our minds. But your second suggestion in terms of bringing in people of color to lead us and to preach to us and to teach us will change our hearts, Um, that there's something about proximity, about being in the same room, about listening to another human being's story and perspective um, that can melt even the, the hardest heart. Yeah. Um and it those things matter. They really do. Those are those are really important beginning steps to start tearing down our own implicit bias, yeah. our own our own internal sinful nature around racism and then ultimately our culture. I think those are um those are amazing examples. If you don't mind I want to go back to um President Obama's regime for another minute. I've got a couple of other questions. Um, I think a lot of, it was interesting. It was interesting to watch his eight years, um, in the white house, because I think a lot of conservative Christians, um, or perhaps others who equate, um, you know, a political party to be automatically aligned with Christian principles. You know, if those two things are conflated in your mind, um, I wonder if I think that they saw Obama's Christianity. Well, some of them outright denied it, rejected it. I think they saw it perhaps as a smokescreen or maybe a vote grab. Um, And so back to something you said earlier, you wrote this incredible book called The President's Devotional. And it includes all these uh, morning devotionals you sent. So with scripture and song and prayer and reflections, all of which he was reading on the daily that inspired his life, his faith, his leadership. Um, And your book really creates a picture of the president as a man of really deep faith. And so I wonder what you, what would you say, why do you think there was this perception um, to the president's? faith, um, sort of from people who did not vote for him and who did not sort of um, believe in him in that way. Um, and, and what would you say that you saw of his yeah. devotion to God and to Scripture? Yeah,
0: great question. Um, so, why was a misperception there? So, one, his name is Barack Hussein Obama, so you know he's got a uh, he's got a funny name, right? And 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 so that that's a part of it too. There's definitely there was definitely a concerted, organized effort to spread that misperception, right? And so you know i i don't know if there's any person in the country that did not receive a false email forward about president obama and his faith and mm-hmm. um and so you know the, part of that was manipulation um from from others um and then the third piece i would say you know it's funny he he, he talked a lot about his faith my my dear friend amy sullivan um wrote an article mm-hmm. where she kind of went through all the times the president um Uh, talked about, you know, his Christian walk, both in the Easter prayer breakfast and the national prayer breakfast Mm -hmm. and round tables and so forth. But it didn't really make a lot of noise. Um, I I think maybe it was because, um, you know, he didn't sort of Scream about it like it wasn't mm-hmm. like he didn't make a big show of it. He just lived it out, you know. Um, yeah. He read these devotionals in the morning. He went to church as as often as he could. Um, he and Michelle would have me come over and, and lead Sunday school for the girls um, some mm-hmm. Sunday mornings. And like he just didn't make a big deal about it. And and, and I and, and like I don't know about you, but to to me like that actually is more evidence for somebody's mm-hmm. walk than, right. the, than the other way around. I, I yes. start getting a little, I don't want to say suspicious because I don't want to judge anyone else, but I, I, it, it starts to feel a little odd to me when, when someone is trying to prove who they are rather than just being who they Great are. Point. And, um, exactly. and so, yeah, I mean, I think those are some of the reasons. Um, I mean, I, I saw something very different, right. I, I mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I saw him, you know, uh, spend time in in prayer with, you know, Joel Hunter in the Oval Office Mm -hmm. um, and pray um, over his family and his life and his work. Every every year on his birthday, we would get um, some pastors and leaders together to just sort of bless. He he wanted um, just a blessing for the year um, Mm -hmm. and to prepare for, you know, for the year ahead and to thank God for the year that, that, that was. Um, And even and certainly in tough national moments, I had the, um, the one part of my my job was being with him you know whether it was before the West Virginia miners funeral or we, we were right. with him in Newtown and and just saw how scripture mm-hmm. and how his relationship with God just kind of buttressed him in those moments and mm-hmm. and how he um tried to thread it into his his public voice um as as a as a um a means of comfort for people who who needed some comfort you know after charleston mm-hmm. amazing grace and and, and so mm-hmm. forth so i mean i saw I just kind of lived out lived yeah. in the way that he loved his wife you know that he that he tried to raise these two girls. And, um, and, uh, and that was probably the most meaningful for me. And so I think for those who were looking for a reason to not Mm -hmm. like Barack Obama, they, this was one of the reasons that they found for those that, you know, had their eyes open and their, and their hearts open. Mm -hmm. I think they they acknowledged that he was not only a good man, but, um, a man who was trying to, to, to walk this Christian walk. Like many Mm -hmm. of us are.
1: Thank you for that side of the story. I want to ask you another question. Um, it was interesting to watch over the course of his um, his both of his seasons um, in the office um, that President Obama wrestled personally, then which ultimately became publicly because there is no personal if you're the president with gay marriage. Yeah. Um, having said that, he supported civil unions at first, but not same-sex marriage. That's when he was a candidate. Um, and and then he, you know, at that time, he said his views as a Christian were that marriage was just a man and a woman. Um, and then as he was gearing up for re-election in 2012, you know, he said publicly that his views were evolving uh, and he was sort of building some support in the gay community. And although plenty of gay rights activists were frustrated by his unwillingness to endorse their, their marriages, but he, he, they did respect his commitment to ending discrimination. You know, it was obviously his push to get Congress to repeal don't ask, don't tell, um, in the military, which was just a really important, important win. Um, but so in 2015 though, when gay marriage was legalized, you know, he tweeted, which was not very often, um, he said, today is a big step in our march toward equality. Gay and lesbian couples now have the right to marry just like anyone else. Hashtag love wins. Mm-hmm. You know, we all watched this. We all paid attention to this and sort of watched his views and his theology sort of evolve here. And I found it very brave to do that on such a big stage. Obviously, really similar to my own process and wrestle coming to terms with um, my own theology and um, my position on gay marriage and and gay folks and Christianity and how that all intersects. Um, and he did that on a really big stage. I, I wonder from your perspective, because you were right up close to that and to him, um, how did you see him grappling with this issue from a faith perspective? And, and what did you think about sort of his reversal and and what was it like in the white house was this hard was the pushback hard was it, it strikes me as very courageous um to to do this in such a huge 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 global stage i would love your perspective of that
0: yeah it was a sort of a really important important moment a set of moments um for the president a lot of it was personal it was um you know i i think he was increasingly unwilling and uneasy um, to be around and be friends with and really love, you know, friends of his staff, you know, people who are dear friends of mine mm-hmm. as well, and and think that there was something about them that um, – mm-hmm was at all like defective or should be limited or you know, just something that was not just purely hundred percent made in the image of God, right? And mm-hmm. um and you know he could sort of argue with himself, and you know, there's, there's poli- uh, policy concerns or political concerns, and so forth. And but ultimately, I think it just sort of boiled down to that—that that he couldn't walk past—and won't mm-hmm. name any names, but you know, uh, uh, there's a the guy that worked in the outer oval and, and, and feel like, man, I'm denying something to this this, sure. this, this guy that you know, who's just as much of a human being, deserves all 100% of the dignity that, that I have in my relationships, totally. um, that, that I'm denying something to him that, that, I, that I don't deny to, to myself. And so, yes, I mean, there's the policy of it, the politics of it, and, and all, all of the above, but I really think for him, it was just sort of that gut level mm-hmm. uneasiness, right, about, um, about um, what felt like discrimination. Um, And, uh, and I think that was probably the biggest motivating thing. And, you know, think he's, he's got, um, you know, the next generation is, is, um, there's, there's some wisdom there. Yeah. Um, and some folks kind of scoff at, well, you know, we can't listen to kids on this, that or the mm-hmm. other, but I, I, I imagine, and I can, not want to put words in his mouth, but I imagine that his daughters were coming home with a strong perspective too and saying dad, you know, like this is, um, we, we, we've got to make sure that we're leading with, with our hearts here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and, um, and that, you know, our, our hearts are open to new things. And so, um, I, I I think that's what it that's what it was um, at, at, at root. I think a lot of people just felt like it was a heart issue. And, you know, this is uh, at the same time, well, you know, a little bit after, but at the same time I got, you know, my grandmother in, in Nashville, who was probably one of those folks that was targeted in 2004 by, you know, gay marriage amendments and yada, yada, yada. She went to her first gay wedding. Cause she's like, you know what? Hmm. I'm tired of, I'm tired of, um, Of, you know, holding on to this this thing Mm. that is separating me from people that love each other and that I love. And and so I think this was happening with a lot of people at the same time was happening to Barack Obama. It
1: was it was it was sort of a seismic shift. Um, in our culture. At the same time, it was just really interesting to watch its reflection in our own president, um, who was also listening to his heart and listening to his friends and colleagues and, you know, amazing people that he loved and respected. And, um, I thought he did that with a lot of grace, um, and with a lot of conviction and courage. It was, that was really, um, really important to me um, to watch that. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and I, I can't not. Yeah. So I totally love Michelle Obama. And so I just need to know if she mm-hmm. is yeah. as fabulous and smart and beautiful and kind and wonderful as I 100% perceive it perceive her to be she she
0: is amazing she's the world's best hugger (laughs) that is absolutely the case Um, we've gotten a lot of those solid hugs from her she's whip smart i mean just you know can see around corners i mean not literally she's not Wakanda, but she uh, like she, she she you know is just really perceptive. I think has a lot of discernment. Yeah, um, is just an amazing person. Um, you know, and I've my wife and I have been able to spend a lot of time uh, with the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, just taking them to church. And, um, she was the one that reached out um to me and said, hey, you know, the girls are busy. We don't get to go to church a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, could you know ask me to host um to put together a a Sunday school for them. And so mm-hmm. we did lessons for well over a year and. Um, and so, you know, their, their faith life was, is, was important to her, um, there, um, and she always put those girls first and she yeah. made sure that, um, you know, the, the, the guy over there in the Oval Office That's put true. those girls first <laughs> as well. And he'll be the first one to say it, but, um, you know, it was, it sh- she really, mm-hmm. um, helped him um, ma- maintain humility, keep his priorities straight as much as possible. And, you know, again, neither one of them are perfect, but, sure. uh, yes, yeah, she is, you know, li- like my wife and I'm sure your husband would say the same that, they, they, uh, there, she was much more perfect than, uh, than the other side of the, of the marriage. So,
1: <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, she, she is pretty great. We, uh, I love her a ton. She's awesome. I'd love that. Thank you for talking about her. So listen, thank you for indulging all my questions about working in the white house. I'm, I'm, I'm it's well-documented that I'm fascinated with the government and with the white house and sort of the pomp and circumstance of that office. And so I appreciate that, but listen, you're no schlump here. So tell us what you've been doing since you left your post in 2013. Um, I talked a little bit about your consulting firm at the top of the show, but can you tell us a little bit more about that work and what you are doing right now to unite, and educate political groups and faith groups and influence. It's really cool what you do. Your work is amazing.
0: Yeah. So three big things that we do at, at values Partnership. So first is, um, and this is going to sound kind of odd, but it's what we do. We produce and promote films and TV shows that have a social impact in the world. And so we led yeah. the marketing and publicity campaigns for films like fences. And for Selma, we worked a bunch yeah. with Oprah Winfrey on her series belief. Um, yeah. and uh, oftentimes that's us, um, Uh, getting those projects out into the world so that people have an opportunity to engage with them and, and, um, and, and, and really uh, be connected to them. Uh, And sometimes it's producing them too. And so we produced um, a documentary on president Obama's legacy called the 44th president in his own words Mm -hmm. that was on the history channel. We're honored that, that, that it won um, best documentary um, at the image awards. So uh, we just wrapped up a series on hate in America called divided States that that sort of, Mm -hmm profiles the um, the rise in hate crimes and what people can do about it that ran on A&E. Um, we were an uh, intimate part of the remake of Roots on the History Channel and, and yeah. just kind of work across different media companies helping to both create and then promote uh, films and TV shows that have an impact in the world. Um, so that's kind of mm. the first thing. The second thing is we- And let me
1: tell you this yeah. before you say the second thing. I want you to know, and I know that you know this, you must get an enormous amount of feedback, but those projects matter. Thank you um, yeah. me and my community, the people that I do life with, we watch those. Oh, thank and you. they create amazing dialogue around our tables in our churches, in our small groups, in our Bible studies like we we literally talk about the work that you do and that's it's so incredibly provocative and sometimes uncomfortable that's disruptive in the best possible way. yeah well, um and so that matters that work it's really really good and important that you're doing that right now
0: well i really appreciate it i mean as as you know better than anyone i mean it, it it's it's through the creation of of culture that you know we can really change hearts and minds and 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 that's what we're trying to do imperfectly but that's you know kind of what we're trying to do on the entertainment front. And then separately, we, we advise some um, some big clients on how to navigate tough issues related to race and religion. So continuing with the mm-hmm. previous work. So for example, yeah. we've been on this two-year beautiful journey with um, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, um, the, the institution mm-hmm. there in, in Charlottesville, um, where they want to get issues of race and slavery right instead of running away from this uh, this twin um, legacy of Jefferson as um, uh, the, probably our most important founding father, if not one of them, but also mm-hmm. someone who owns human beings. And and, and rather That's than right. sweep that under the rug, they want to engage with it fully. And so we, we've done a lot with mm-hmm. them. They have a Slavery at Monticello app. They have a new tour that focuses on uh, the enslaved individuals there. We hosted a big convening and just really helping them grapple with, with those issues. We also work with clients like Great. Google, helping them partner with the Black Church to close the digital divide. And so we do advisory services hmm. related to race and religion. And then finally, the third big thing is uh, our newest project. We've launched this. Um, it's going to also sound a little wonky, but a new market research platform called Gage. And the basic notion <laughs> is that brands and companies are not talking with uh, the people who have the pulse of their communities. Um, they they do market research and they invite 10 people into a room in the mall, but they're not really talking with folks who, um, who, who know their stuff and who know um, what makes communities tick. And so we have a mobile App where you know um, Pepsi, um, for example, rather than running running that Kindle Jenner ad without talking to a bunch mm. of black folks, like they can connect Dang. with the right people on a mobile app. Or you know, before someone puts out a book in the faith based space, they can um, get video or audio message feedback from uh, key leaders of faith. So we we say we're closing the knowledge gap between brands and communities. Um, people get compensated for providing their feedback, and so hopefully we're creating some some value and wealth in in, in diverse communities as well. So that's called Gage. It's getgage.com. We're super excited about it. Got a, got a lot of uh, partners, and, and that's growing. So those are the three big things entertainment um, that has a social impact, advisory services, and this new platform called Gage. Yeah
1: fabulous. Uh, we'll link to all that too. So people can see more. So I want to ask you one last question. Um, and we're asking everybody this in this exploring your faith series. So I wonder if you could leave us with either a quote from a spiritual leader who you love or admire, or maybe a scripture, um, either way that sort of epitomizes your, your life's work, um, and, and puts fuel in the tank for you to keep going.
0: Yeah, um, it's hard to narrow it down. I'll say a, a couple quick oh. things. Um, for the literally, it's it's going to sound insane, but for the last year and a half, I've been sort of stuck in Colossians three. It's like this granular mm. pathway um, of sort of how to live a holy life, and and you know lots yeah. of places where where I fail and and those instructions, but I've really been praying through every verse, and so that's one thing. But of late, it's funny as recently as this past Sunday, um, really been focusing in on. These passages in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about sort of the, the wisdom of the world being foolish and in, in God's sight. And um, I've been... Th- these phrases from my childhood, remember where we started, which is like, you know, I was in the church, but you know, the church wasn't in me, but then, yeah, but I have to correct myself a bit because these simple phrases, you know, about trusting in God and, um, and you know, the, uh, are, are coming back to me now, and they have much more profound meaning and the world would say that they're simple and that there's more complex stuff out there. But for me, they, they are now becoming so much more important. Um, I, um, uh, you know, for example, um, there's this, um, this phrase in the black church that he's a heart fixer and a mind regulator. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, there's a gospel song about it. It's like Mm -hmm. from the twenties or thirties, my grandmother would say it in church Mm -hmm. and you just, I just kind of rolled my eyes at it before he's a heart fixer and a mind regulator. But I, you know, I woke up Sunday morning and it was stuck in my head that, you know, yeah. God, we need you to fix our hearts yeah. and to regulate our busy and just crazed and like obsessive yeah. minds That's that are refreshing right. our timelines and following Trump and trying yeah. to keep up with kids and and so forth. We need you to bring some pacing and mm. You know, and breathing to, and, and 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 peace to our minds. He's a heart fixer cool. and a mind regulator. So, it's, I guess it's a long way of saying, you know, verse Corinthians three. I think it's like eighteen um, and, and following that, where it talks about how God sort of confounds the wisdom of this world and and. Um, it, and encourages us to focus on the this, this simple truths. Um, that's something that I've been meditating of late. So that, I don't know if that captures, you know, my life and work, but that's kind of where I am now. I love
1: so. it. I scribbled down that phrase, as you said it, because I just think you've prescribed the remedy to what we what ails us right now. Um, yeah. we need our hearts fixed and our minds regulated and, um, and we know the guy we know yep. the guy who can do it. That's amazing. <laughs> so, um, Joshua, if you'll just tell everybody, um, where they can find you, how, where do they find your things, your books, your resources, your work, um, before we sign off here.
0: Sure. You can usually find me chasing after August Dubois, but other than that, (laughs) um, you can find me on Twitter at Joshua Dubois. My personal website is joshuadubois.com. You can check out the project that I mentioned, Gage, at getgage.com. And our consulting company, not that you don't have enough websites now, is is valuespartnerships.com. But if you don't forget all of that, you can just go to at Dubois on Twitter and there'll be some links there. Awesome.
1: Thanks for being on today. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for your incredible integrity and the amount of hard work you've put in honestly to our country, um, at such a high, important national level, the work that you have done is going to last and, um, affected so many real lives and continues to affect real lives. And I just, I, I think you should just be so proud of your work and of your focus and of the way that you're using your gifts, your amazing education. Um, it is incredibly profound. We need 10,000 more of you yesterday. And so <laughs> well, you are way um, too kind, Jen. Thank I'm you not so much. Kind. I'm just and, telling the truth.
0: Well, and 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 I have to say, and this is not just a, a return to what you just said about me, but there is something really, really special going on here. This mm-hmm. there there's a reason why folks are listening right now, and it's mm-hmm. because. Um, This is not happening in other places, Jen Hamrick. You you Mm -hmm. are pulling a community together that is serious about their faith, but also curious and serious about what's happening in the Mm -hmm. world that wants to be inspired, but also wants to live in a real way. This is unique and it's really special. And I want to appreciate you and thank you for doing that. And and thank all the folks that are listening and and encourage y'all to pray for me, too. So uh, thanks so much for who you are. Thank you,
1: Joshua, for being on today. No problem. Thank you. Talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I surely did. And I want to say that I appreciate you being here for this series. Um, there's probably a 0% chance you are going to agree with every single person we have on it. Um, since we just are representing such a wide variety of experiences and perspectives. But I think it's important that we listen to all of it. I think it's good. I don't think we need to fear an alternative position or perspective or hard questions or even disagreement. Um, I think the sort of robust and respectful civil dialogue in a faith space is really important. And so for those of you who um, did not like President Obama or support him or um, or you are a Trump supporter, uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening and I'm glad that you're paying attention. And I hope that conversations like these can continue to move the needle forward on kindness and civil dialogue and unity in things essential um, and maybe in Interpersonal understanding and relationships. I mean, I know they're challenging me for sure. And so, um, I thank you for coming in. I thanks for thanks for staying here. Thanks for listening um, to everybody in this series, whether they represent sort of your space or not. I think this is um, this is good work, and and it's work that matters. And so, I really am grateful to Joshua for um, his life of faithfulness and this series is packed with amazing guests. I have loved every bit of it. Thanks for listening. Thank you for subscribing and making this podcast um, such a joy to me and my team. And so we're so glad to bring it to you week in and week out. And so um, we appreciate our amazing listeners. Mm -hmm. We're back for another segment of Jen's Favorite Things. This is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus, they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you, our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. So bear soaps. The bear soap sampler pack is the perfect Mother's Day gift comes with four samples of their top-selling handmade bars, all in this branded cotton bag, and it gives back to women. So use the code GENHATMAKER15 for 15% off at bear-soaps.com. Allison and Aubrey is an affordable on-trend jewelry line by mother-daughter duo Allison and Aubrey Lombatis to encourage women to borrow and bond over their love of style and accessories. So get 15% off with code For the love 15 at Allison and Aubrey.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs
0: up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.